Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Welcome to this week's episode of Safe Room, a horror video game podcast and proud member of Bloody Disgusting's Bloody FM podcast network. I'm your host, Jay Krieger. And I'm the other one, Neil Bow. And this week, we're celebrating the 25th anniversary of what is can only be described as one hell of a monolith of a first-person shooter, that being Valve's timeless classic Half-Life. Following everyone's favorite crowbar-wielding theoretical physicist, Gordon Freeman, on his worst day of work ever, as an experiment goes awry at the Black Mesa Research Facility, opening a portal to an alien world, flooding the facility with hostile aliens as well as human soldiers sent in to eradicate the Black Mesa staff. But it isn't just Neil and I charging our HEV suits and unloading both barrels into headcrabs this week, as we're joined by former head of gaming at Social Chain, Brett Claxton. Brett, welcome to the show. Hi there. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for letting me um, geek out about a game that was <laughs> one of my first PC games, to be fair. <laughs> it's definitely up there with one of those... You know, first ones, isn't it? It's just, I think, especially in the UK, it was like PC gaming just start to get big in that post Doom era. Mm. Like, yeah, I remember it was like well, one after the other, after the other, after the other at that point, and it was just mad to think that we went from like Doom to like Half Life in like a few years. <laughs> like, that, yeah, it, it was crazy that that was like still really in like the first, the first handful of PC games I ever played as well. And it's like it, it's just nuts to think that gaming jump that much in mm. it so quickly because i think that's the thing i was i was a console game i had a amiga i can't remember what number because all amigas had random <laughs> oh, God, numbers yeah. after them <laughs> um but i had an amiga in the early 90s and even then like you didn't really have first person shooters weren't that no. prevalent on them um and you know as i had a playstation one i had an n64 and obviously um goldeneye and all that jazz but there wasn't any um amazing first person shooters i don't think on um playstation one or on console before half-life i don't even think goldeneye is that amazing a first person shooter but we'll get into that at another point (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah half-life was just like it was just something i had never seen before and it just did some 
so much not just with how it played but the story behind it and how it told its story just really fascinated me even at quite a young age when i played it yeah yeah absolutely i mean that was the key thing wasn't it? it just it had a story and it played out i mean that was one of the fun revelations from the documentary that came out was that basically you think of it must have been this greatly structured thing where they just did it all meticulously and put it all together and then it's like nah we fucked around for a few years and then yeah, for a year and then just put it all together at the end it's like doesn't feel like it how did you get away with it like that? it's, like, it's always it's always nice when mistakes are like that i guess <laughs> well yeah, not mistakes but things just come yeah, together that's it. they got to basically freeform jazz it i think that was the main thing which um I think you could probably get away with a bit more when you're a startup company just doing your own thing <laughs> at that point. Yeah, you're not as married to the rules. And that's probably the best example, though, of like when creativity really flourishes, right? It's like, oh, they can't. I think in the documentary, um, which we should mention, is by Danny O'Dwyer's pr- new production company, Secret Tape, um, which, you know, people can find that on YouTube and whatnot. And that came out and coincided with the release of, um, or with the anniversary that just happened. Um, and, you know, that's one of those things where when you start to look at the little pieces of it, and if you describe those pieces individually, you're like, okay, well, these all sound like the sort of byproducts that you've heard in other games and these things. But then once you put that all together, it really makes for this experience that, you know, as we were saying before the show is just timeless in so many different ways. But, you know, in terms of like when you guys first came uh, to this game, Brett, for you, like, what was that like just experiencing that opening and that intro? Uh, because all these years later, you know, that, that intro still, it's one of the most amazing intros, I think, to not only a first-person shooter, but just games in general, because it's, it so goes against the grain of what you're expecting, mm. uh, not only, again, for a first-person shooter, but just like a game in general, a commute to work. Like, how could that be exciting? And then, you know, that kind of sets the perfect primer, I think, for Half-Life. Because I think that's the thing as well. Like it's, it's so much of the game is, at the, the early parts of the game, either even it's setting up this slow commute. You get on the train, you go over the train, you then just talk to people and walk through. You can mess with microwaves if you want to, and yeah. it's not until <laughs> you get into that chamber and everything goes Pete Tong that you're just like, oh wow, this is how it's kicking in. I didn't. It could easily be just a fun exploration game up to that point. And then all of a sudden, everything starts to go wrong and you start thinking, wait, what's going on? Oh my God, it's aliens. Everything's going wrong. And you know, that's a good 15 minutes of the game. And it's, especially for back then, it's quite risky to have a game have a very slow start for so long. Mm. When you compare it to all the other games that were out in that time, they started fast and they started hard. And this just thought like, nah, commute to work. We'll make it fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> This is it. And I, he's saying, actually, they touch upon in that documentary about the two things were, you know, making sure there's always something to keep you busy every few seconds or whatever, isn't it? Like, as you're moving, if you're staying still, fine. But if you're moving, something should be happening every now and then. And even that applies when you think of it uh, in what, that opening. But, yeah, they were saying, as you said, so many games then, especially in the first-person shooter arena, were literally, like, drop you on a level you figure it out sort of thing you know like shoot that shoot that shoot that and th- that was you know we covered quake 2's like remastered not long ago and that game has a cutscene and stuff to open it and, and do all this but it still like drops you into levels like that and just like eh, figure out why this connects and figure out what that means and it's just light years of difference between 
the two, and yet they are like a year apart. It's it's insane. I think even then, I was just like, it was a whole other different level to anything I'd played at that point. I mean, I think even afterwards, for years, nothing came close to the remarkable things it was doing. I think you had that sort of gap between certain studios who could just make this stuff that just seemed like magic. You know, like early rock star, like um, you know, Konami with Kojima and things like that, where you'd be like, how the fuck is this so different from what everyone else is <laughs> making? And just that technological leap was so easy to have at that point. I think where in the same year, two blockbuster games could be like <laughs> completely different in terms of sophistication. And what I loved as well about not just the, ho- the whole game, but the intro is there's so many... Easter eggs isn't necessarily the right word, but foreboding moments as you're going yes. through that journey that you can replay that intro, and I have repeatedly, multiple mm. times <laughs> and oh, yeah. just spend the time seeing, oh, what happens if I go over here? What happens if I play with this? Can I find my like a way to get out of the chamber and you know try and find just dumb stuff and explore? And it encourages you to do that. And it a lot of the time yeah. rewards you for doing that as well. That That's what makes it so... That's what made it back then so special and still something that games don't do today. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I was going to sort of just carry on and say, like, my situation is fairly similar, you know, PC gaming early on. I said to you before, Jay, it's like, you know, I had an uncle and a, a nephew who, of uh, my, sorry, not nephew, a cousin to me, his nephew, who, you know, were big PC gamers at that point. Yeah, and like yeah, they had copies of everything. So we used to get those, um, you know, nice and uh, generous uh, copies of things, you know, to play on our PC <laughs> when we got it. And yeah, so it was pretty much like the greatest hits things from '97 onwards. Just like here's Duke Nukem, here's Doom, here's Quake, here's like that. And so it really was between, yeah, you know, I think '97 and '99. I, I played all these big games of PC gaming and like. I think Quake was the weirdest one. Yeah, because we've talked about it on here. Love Quake. Such fondness for it. Cherish it. Same for Duke Nukem. They were the ones I played first. But Half-Life was just, like, intimidating in how different it was. You know, like, and just how that opening, as we were talking about, just felt so wrong, almost, at that point. Where you are so used to... First-person shooters, especially just not having story, being about this early idea of multiplayer, which I was just sort of discovering as well. And, yeah, I can't remember how many times I've replayed that opening. You know, Even without, like, oh, I'm starting the game again and playing the whole thing, but it just, I want to do that intro. I just want to do an intro mm. and do like that. And so many times, I mean, in the last week and a half alone, I've replayed that intro about five times in different versions. So <laughs> it's... um. It is just one of the all-time greats uh, in that regard. And from there, it just goes to places that are probably less well-remembered uh, and some not as well-liked. You know, the ending, uh, I think, is uh, <laughs> one of those contentious points. And now we know why, I think, from what they said, the documentary was, you know, the whole Zen stuff was just, yeah, we ran out of time. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's, it's noticeable. We ran out of time. <laughs> But yeah, it is. It was amazing, and I remember by the time it came to Half Life Two, like 
didn't really have the PC power that we once had at that point. And so it felt like a bit of a pipe dream that I'd ever get to play it. And then, you know, and I was more on consoles and but I used to see screenshots of it and just dream about it. You know, actually it used to be a thing with games that I was really excited about. Just, I'd have these vivid dreams about what I thought they'd be and like that. And it was just so exciting. And yeah, I mean, it's amazingly went and did the same thing again with that game and just made like this game was like, fucking hell, they've done it again. Different, better, amazing. And yeah, I think Valve in general, I think, as I'm sure we will get to, just have a knack, you know, for when they do actually put stuff out, it's genuinely quite good, you know? And, and you know, usually to the point where it's uh, featured in some kind of top 100 list in one way or another. So, yeah, they... That game really did just show from day one there's a company that's just going to be around forever, it seems, even if they're not the same company at this point. You know, for me, I came to Half-Life much later. I came to it in 2006 for the first time, and that's because I remember that date specifically because it was coincided with like moving into a new house, getting high-speed internet, could download Steam, and then had you know access to an entire back catalog of games that you know, I at the time couldn't have access to and, you know, now had the PC power to actually play it. Um, And, you know, it was the type of thing that while I was always a fan of shooters, it didn't stretch far from the likes of Wolf, Doom, and then, you know, whatever early aughts shoot console shooter was out at the time. Um, But, you know, I didn't view story in first person shooters the same way until I actually sat down and played Half-Life. And, you know, despite the fact that I was a number of years removed from when it was released and it didn't look anything like the games that I was accustomed to playing, um, that opening sequence is so ingrained in my brain forever as it is yours and our our collective. Um, But it's the thing where I was like, I didn't even realize that I had full control until I got about halfway through that ride to work. I kind of like, was watching, I assumed like, this is how first person shooters start. You get a cutscene and you get to sit there and then I accidentally bumped the mouse and it moves and I realized, holy shit, I can view this entire area uh, within the confines of that car and, you know, really decide what pieces of detail that I want to latch onto. And that for me was like a very early introduction to Valve and something that we've already kind of mentioned a little bit, which is that the world in a majority of their games are reactive to everything the player does, whether the stakes are massive, whether it's combat, whether it's puzzles, or if it's just through those little seemingly innocuous details that we mentioned, like fucking around with the microwave and all of a sudden the burrito explodes. Or if I mess with the uh, vending machines, a can of soda will fall out. Or if I bug the same scientist over and over at one point, he'll basically kind of be like, scram, get out of here, Gordon, you've got somewhere to be. And, you know, that layer of detail, I was not super accustomed to. Uh, specifically in first-person shooters, you know, a lot of what I was playing at the time um, was games where it was like, you know, as soon as it starts, you're dropped into that world, here's your gun, here's your key card, and you're not really thinking about it in the context of like a world where there are characters and, you know, there are ramifications for specific actions, but those ramifications usually were just like a hail of bullets, basically. Um, And so for Half-Life, you know, to have that opening was very eye-opening, but at the same time, I think it just speaks overall to, you know, Valve making sure that the worlds in which they're creating are responsive to players in more than one way. It's not just shooting a wall and there's a bullet hole. 
Um, you know, when you describe something like that, you're like, yeah, that's every first person shooter. But for the period, like having that type of feedback really did have the sense of empowerment, I think, um, that typically I wasn't experiencing in first person shooters unless I was directly hitting a target, right? Mm -hmm. So to see this bigger influence on the world itself, um, I don't know, it just, it gave a different weight to all of my actions, um, which was something that, you know, I would then um, <laughs> be remiss because I wouldn't find that in some other first person shooters that I would play, whether from that era or even later on. And it was this kind of thing where I was like, are we forgetting some of these lessons that were taught from Valve or from Half-Life? And, you know, all games are obviously set out with different intentions and whatnot. But Half-Life was a game that I'd come back to countless times over the years. And it just felt so fresh and exciting in a way that I don't always feel like with some first-person shooters or games in general uh, that I'm revisiting. And I think like, you know, games ha will often learn from that sort of intro and try and have like sometimes you play a game you're almost like oh okay it's the half-life intro it's the last of yeah. us intro there is you can <laughs> right. tell when yeah. games have <laughs> taken that influence but yes. sometimes it's hard to do what someone has done and just replicate it without making it better and i think like from and obviously i know i'm um, bloody discussing and everything you also are engaged and engrossed in the world of film and as someone who studied it and spent you know, three years of my life getting a degree in it. I think one thing that I've always found fascinating about Half-Life and obviously, you know, first-person games in general is people always argue, can games be like cinema? Can our games art, et cetera, et cetera. But when what Half-Life does so well is go with the under, this idea of, okay, we're going to tell a story and it's up to you how you consume that story. You can run around in a circle for all we care. We're still going to tell <laughs> this story and it's, yeah, it'll be framed weird if you're running around in a circle. But like, you, there is stories to happening here and you can either hear it all and experience it all or you can just run through it and blitz through it and not care about it at all. You have the freedom to do that. The, you, the player, are the director almost of how this all plays out. Um, and, you know, obviously we've talked about the intro, but like once you get past that intro area, um, it starts to become there's lots of really interesting puzzle bits. And I think that's what does help make um, help Half-Life stand out is the fact that it's not just shooty, shooty, bang, bang. It's also let's think about how we're going to do this. Let's get past the electrified um, floor and stuff like that. Um, and I've realized this is something I've not actually said yet on the podcast. The main way I played Half-Life, so I played it at my friend's house originally, and it was great. I played it on the PC. And then my mum had a laptop that she had from work. And then I basically think, like, work, we're going to get well, upgrading laptops. So she was like, oh, can I keep it for my son? So I had this laptop. What I didn't have was a mouse. So <laughs> I played throughout nearly all of Half-Life on a trackpad, Oh my goodness. <laughs> I got to, and the best way I could think to describe this, and I'm aware we're jumping way into the future of the story and we can loop back around um, <laughs> later on, but the best way I could think to describe it is the bullsack monster in space. Do you know what I mean? Yep. yep. Yeah. And it was, I, was, I was on that. Jump, Hard to forget. <laughs> jumping up the platforms. And I was just like, this is impossible because obviously I don't have a mouse. So how would, like, how can you do intricate <laughs> platforming without a mouse? But it's a testament to how good that game is that I was didn't even think about how difficult it was to play for the most part just because yeah. i was having that much fun with it i was that engrossed in it um i don't actually know if i ever 
did complete that save because I never got a mouse. But I have, yeah. like, in the future, got, got through it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that, that is playing on hard mode. <laughs> saying. Oh, man. But, yeah, I, I, I think even then, like, mouse and keyboard was still quite new to me. Yeah? Even though I played several games you know, to death at that point. It always just felt so intimidating, you know, to and something about having a story made it harder almost, you know. It, I don't know why. Probably because it was a distraction from like you know, the, the pure stuff of um a lot of my PC gaming sort of shooting over those early years was just like if it was that in normal game or if it was multiplayer as I got into that, you know, it, it was very straightforward, very focused, very like Learn the maps, do the things, repeat, rinse, all that. Whereas this was, you know, you are telling a story. And I think what really helped was Resident Evil 2 coming out and being another game where I'd been obsessed about it before it came out and looking at it and picking it apart through guides and things like that. And playing it was easier because of that. I think just looking for all these things for Half-Life at that point, like uh, magazine things and like guides and like these step-by-step-by-step things, which, yeah, it's a lot easier to do that for like a third-person adventure where you go, here's a screen that says what happens in this bit, this bit. For a first-person shooter, like that moves at the speed Half-Life does. It's like, yeah, you are trying to fit a lot of detail that doesn't really mean much into these short spaces. And, I don't know, that for me kind of let, released me from it then because I was there in that mindset of if I know everything, I'll be fine and I'll be more comfortable. Because it was so frustrating to try and understand that in magazine format at that time, I just went, fuck it, yeah, and I'll just do it. I'll go through that, that. And it became like this wonderful mix. You know, if Resident Evil 2 was like survival horror in, in the most obvious sense, Half-Life felt like survival horror in terms of just how it would, I was playing it because I just felt like I was living moment to moment and everything that was happening and reacting to things as they went, you know, like, oh, you know, from that intro and put to the explosion and the dimensional stuff happening to everything that comes after it. And it's just like replaying it the last few times, this last couple of weeks has been just mind-blowing to go back to it and go, wow, just for a game that they're saying they, they've just sort of linked together through p- bits and pieces, the sense of escalation and scale that goes on in that game is just amazing. And I think that's what I like about it. it you feel rewarded by getting through each thing and then challenged again as you get to the next part and find out what you're coming up against, you know, when they start adding in human enemies and, you know, outside influences. And even Zen, you know, when you get there, you know, it's a whole different kettle of fish again. You are just thrust into a whole new situation with new abilities as well. And it it's just amazing to think that it had that kind of pace and structure, despite being a jigsaw puzzle made up of four or five different jigsaws, effectively. So it, it's just... Yeah, I, I'm just in awe of what that game does in that regard. Well, I think a big part of that is something that um, Brett mentioned early on, which was the idea that this game was not just another first-person shooter, that all it yeah. had was the shooty bang-bang bits to it, right? And I think that 
that was also eye-opening for me when I finally got around to playing Half-Life after, you know, primarily playing fantastic but straightforward first-person shooters. Um, and to play a game that not only begins that way, that was very surprising. And all of a sudden it was like, oh, okay, this is just a new presentation for probably a package that I'm going to be fairly familiar with. And then to continually face pacing that is mixing up the types of experiences that Half-Life has in this really succinct way that perfectly complements what came just before it. Because, you know, just as perhaps you're getting a little tired of, you know, this corridor section or something like that, then all of a sudden you're in an outdoor environment or now you've got this platforming section. And that's always something that I forget every time I go back to replay Half-Life is how much of this game is platforming, mm -hmm. uh, which, you know, is something that I love about the game. And the fact that you have these really interesting environments and the ways in which they have these environmental puzzles, but then also you have to deal with things like momentum. And I think about like those platforms that have water on them. And so you start sliding a little bit more and you have to kind of like get the timing down perfectly. And all of those little things add up to an experience that I think I played this game, um, this most recent replay in like four sittings maybe. And that's all mm -hmm. it took because I just, I sit down and I can't not play it for almost yeah. a handful of hours. Yeah, um, I very momentum, rarely do that. So. Yeah, it, exactly. It has that momentum. So it's the type of thing that, and not that I like force myself to get through something, but it is the type of game where I sit there and I literally lose track of time, which I don't know, the older I get is not something I do all that often. But this is one of those games where I'm just continually impressed with the way that they're able to not only redefine your expectations every level of the game, but how they then start to return to certain elements. But then they just change one thing, like what Neil said with the combat. I was like, okay, I'm getting tired of shooting head crabs and vortigons, and then the military shows up. And then, you know, you go back to fighting the military and then the aliens, but now they're all in one section. And the ways in which it just kind of builds and builds and builds and builds to the point that you leave Earth completely um, is one of the aspects of this game that, again, you know, it really speaks to, I suppose, a first-person shooter that utilizes its length in a way that I don't always commend games from the same era as. You know, sometimes when I play either mid-90s or late-90s shooters, it gets to a point where I get close to like the 10-hour mark and I'm kind of like, you know, it's just a different kind of shade of paint, if you will, for the environments or the weapons that I'm using. But with Half-Life... It's the type of thing where I'm just as engaged, if not even more excited to just see, you know, what's next, even at that 10 hour mark or that 11 hour mark. I think it probably is partly like, and it's not to say every 90 shooter was a corridor shooter, but they were sure. all to a degree, a corridor shooter, really. Hmm. Whereas hmm. Half-Life with its platforming sections, it had that bit of verticality. There was a bit of um, open world, well, not open world, but open spaces that you could explore a bit more. Um, and it did it all really interestingly i think as well when the the game i always think about as well when it comes to just building up the change of enemies perfectly is alien isolation it's like every time you start to get a bit bored or you get start to get used to something they change up what you know so it's slightly different and half-life is a game that just it, it's why it's wild to hear because i haven't watched the documentary it's wild to hear that they just sort of jigsawed it together and i guess that was just game creation back in the 90s a lot of the time but it is a case of like it's so well made how is this game just freeform jazz when it's like yeah. such a well put together thing and i guess you know much like freeform jazz some of it's bloody great and half-life yeah. is just one of those situations <laughs> where it was bloody great you know i remember playing opposing force blue shift um i still have 
the PS2 version, which is obviously Decay as well. Mm. And, you know, that proved that the game can work on console if you want it to. I know people don't think of the PS2 version as fondly, but that that co-op game on the PS2 version was great Mm. fun if you had a friend to play it with. Yeah, that that, that was the other mad thing about it. It almost felt like a whole new experience to play it on PS2. Mm. I mean, obviously it felt lesser if you played it on PC because, you know, it's a very specific setup at that point. You know, it's like, I mean, they've only just fucking added controller support for the original version <laughs> with this anniversary update. So it's like yeah. on PC. So yeah, it, it shows you how different they were. But yeah, anytime those sort of PC shooters came to console, it was always like a, a stress test of how malleable is that game for, you know, other environments and how well they work. Because, you know, that for a while, again, has been a problem in the recent history for PC games that are very PC centric is how to make them work on consoles. You think of those like big CRPGs, you know, you know, like Divinity that they cracked that code and made it work for consoles. And now that's, they opened the floodgates for so many to do that. And I think during those early sort of PlayStation years, you know, obviously we had the you know, Doom went on there and things like that. But I always go back to that version of Quake 2 on PS1 which was remarkable for what it was you know it was it was nowhere near as good as like the PC version but it was like fantastic to actually play multiplayer Quake 2 on a PS1 was just felt like something out of this world you know and go to the Half-Life port for PS2 I think the audience at the time and even like the critics of the time who were very console centric did not quite gel with it in the same way because it's like we have a very clear idea. You think of how shooters were on console back then, you know, the control schemes weren't nailed down in the way they are these days. Like it it took years for that to work out. You know, you only have to go back like 15 years to certain games and go, how do we get along with these controls? You know, like it, it doesn't make sense like that, like that. And I remember it being like this big, controversial thing when that Alien Resurrection game kind of got there and kind of nailed the idea on PS1 of what maybe first-person shooter controls could be like on a console. And it, it was very much ahead of its time. So yeah, I think the PS2 version of Half-Life was just unlucky. Uh, in the same way that Quake 3 on PS2 was quite unlucky that the audience maybe wasn't ready for it as it was because games on consoles had to sort of follow the golden eye model, if you will. And uh, so that, that, you know, you had stuff like time splits for that, but it was a very different place. And it was quite fascinating at the time to sort of be able to see both sides of that, you know, having been on the PC side and see the console side and seeing that gap close over the years and to the point where it doesn't really exist anymore, you know, it's comfortable either way when you do it. And I think as well, like I'd implore anyone who has a, still has a PS2 knocking about and has two controllers, pick up the version, like Half-Life if you can find it. I'm sure it's not, I don't know how much it actually sells for these days, but I don't think it's <laughs> one that is rare. Um, but, you know, the the um, co-op game, it's really fun. It's almost um, aching to Portal 2's co-op to a degree, yeah. I guess. It's that sort of mindset of, okay, you've got to help each other, you've got to get through this sort of stuff. Um, and I don't think it's ever released outside of the PS2 version. I might be wrong. I'm sure there might be ways mm. that you can play it on things like PC. Um, 
in nefarious ways, but it's a case <laughs> of it's an interesting thing and an interesting slice of um, Half-Life history that I don't think gets talked about as much. Same as um, Blue Shift and Opposing Force, you know, they're yeah. the fun spin-offs of Half-Life. Yeah. yeah. On, on a quick note, um, you can probably hear at least on Amazon, you can buy a copy for 15 quid. So, you know, if you've got a PS2 but you haven't got it, there you go. It's there. You guys are lucky in the States, it's about 70, which is, you know, given how, at the same time, given how much, uh, you know, some games get repriced at, I wouldn't pay 70, but it's the thing where it's like, I've seen the games of this same sort of level of rarity go for three or four times that amount. Um, that is, as is the resale market, unfortunately. But, um, you know, I think if anything, thinking about the co-op version, Shoving co-op into a single-player game where it you know, natively was not a part of with the original is actually something that would work better than most with Half-Life because of the fact mm. that Half-Life doesn't utilize the traditional sort of cutscene uh, cut to tell its narrative, yeah. right? The fact that it's always in first person from Gordon and you know, whoever this other character is going to be in the co-op version. But you know, that would be one of those situations where co-op would probably not end up feeling that foreign, which might be why it is one of these... Uh, sort of strange uh, experiences within the Half-Life universe that, you know, unfortunately seemingly died on PS2. But at the same time, you know, it it makes sense why that would resonate with people because of the fact that, you know, you're not really losing anything in that regard. Uh, you know, whereas if it was more traditional, it might be kind of strange all of a sudden it has cutscenes and now there's two Gordons instead of one or some weirdness like that. Um, but if anything, that kind of is, again, speaking a little bit to kind of the modding community and whatnot and seeing how people would take all these variables from source and whatnot and then create their own experiences, whether it be multiplayer competitive focused, whether it be single player cooperative, um, which was, you know, a huge aspect of my time with, you know, not only Half-Life, but just, I think, source games in general um, and whatnot. But um, before we dive into more of that, as well as, you know, the... Uh, I think what is probably one of my favorite arsenals in first-person shooters, which I can't wait to talk about. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, more on that in a moment. And we are back from our break. And, you know, when you think about weapons in first-person shooter games, for me, Half-Life is always one that's like right at the top of the list because of the fact that it really is a standout from the 90s in the sense that when you look at that very lengthy, I always seem to forget, you know, just how many guns is at the player's disposable and weapons and explosive types and all these things. I feel like it's always the best version of what is sort of like the stock standard first person shooter gun. But the way in which Valve has taken the, you know, of course, like when you think of first person shooters, the shotgun is typically one that everybody's like, oh, I have to have a great shotgun, a powerful shotgun. And, you know, the fact that they were able to kind of just put little tweaks on the alt fires or in the types of weapons that you'd find later on that are a little more extravagant. Um, but at the same time, they still felt unique while still perfectly uh, you know, usable. I think if anything, sometimes when you look at first-person shooters, you get a long list of weapons and then you stick with about a third of them. Whereas in Half-Life, I just love how every gun feels like it serves a purpose that is just as, I suppose, effective from the moment you find it or discover it to then the very end of the game. It's not the type of thing where it's like, oh, well, I'm just never going to use the pistol again. No, because there's these alt fires and whatnot and how they just end up being so much more uh, effective than I guess your sort of just stock standard um, guns. But I think that also for me, what I love about the weapons in Half-Life, and this is a continuation into you know Half-Life 2, 
some of the weapons are just so weird, except they are, you know, resemblant of the worlds that they're in. Like in the first game, when you get the crossbow gun, it's like, why would I ever use a dark gun when I've got a rocket launcher or something? But then you see the multitude of uses for these weapons and how effective they can be. And seeing like that gun carry over from the original to then Half-Life 2. And now in Half-Life 2, it's kind of like these, uh, what are they, like corrosive rebars that you're firing with it. Like just things like that. I think, again, it it makes me sad when I think about the fact that Valve doesn't make as many games as they used to because of the fact they were able to take you know, genre staples and tropes, but they could always put some kind of weird, unique spin on it that made it feel like, oh, this is a brand new type of weapon or a new invention or something. And, you know, that's always a quality of their games that uh, that's why I go back and replay their games because I always want to kind of experience that Valve magic, I suppose. I think think as well, one thing with... Because there's loads of wonderful weapons, but there is also the iconic basic weapon, which is the crowbar. And Mm -hmm. it's a case of like... They made it so the crowbar's always useful, the crowbar's always easy to get hold of, and it, they've made it almost an iconic weapon that when you think of Half-Life, you think of the crowbar, you think of the head crabs, you think of Gordon. And it's impressive when it's such a basic we- weapon, especially when you consider all the random stuff they have, because I can't remember the name of it, but the little bug things that you throw um alien oh, bug things. yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> and they're great fun to do but like the fact that they have all this great stuff and i still when i think of half-life think crowbar glasses um and lots of craziness in a in a lab <laughs> yeah i think again one of those things they went into detail quite well with the documentary was just about how they made it sound how they you know they realized that players would just smack it off things all the time and and just getting the sound design to work with that I think really did just play a huge part in making that feel so satisfying to use and I think as you said having enemies like the head crabs just made it like the perfect like just bludgeon these little fuckers and just take them out sort of thing and yeah it's yeah the melee weapon is another one of those things that didn't get the love it needed I think it always gets that sort of disdain in a lot of first person games. I think, you know, you think of like Call of Duty, people mostly complain about people that use knives uh, you know, <laughs> in the multiplayer. So to have a weapon that, you know, yeah, anytime you see it in any other game, you instantly think, oh, Half Life nod, clearly, you know, like why else would you have a crowbar sort of thing? And uh, like that. And yeah. Well, I was just agreeing, I was saying it's it's just crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. And that's it. I mean <laughs> to be honest, before then I can't remember ever thinking of a crowbar. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it just, it, it just feel like the entry point for many people that a crowbar, okay, like that, you know, like that. Like even stuff you go back and watch like film-wise that has a crowbar in it, like later on, you just, oh, yeah, that's that thing from Half-Life. Like, <laughs> it's just, it's nuts. But yeah, the rest of the weapons, yeah, that nice mix of like traditional and like cosmic, yeah, the snark, as we've mentioned, is just like um, one of the things that many games, again, have copied over the years, just having like a living grenade, effectively. I'm thinking of um, Munch's Odyssey, is not was it? What's yeah, the other one? I think it does, yeah. yeah. It, yeah. Stranger's Wrath? Stranger's Wrath, that's it, yeah. yeah. That's the one where they have the similar sort of things. Um, and Shotgun, you know, as we said, always important. It's great here. Um, just sounds great. I think the sound is just amazing in so many ways in this game anyway but like the hornet gun 
you know, the fact that it comes, you know, it's an, a limb from an alien enemy it just <laughs> makes it feel like, oh, this is cool. This feels like that really taps into this whole sort of like cosmic horror thing that's going on, you know, like all this otherworldly stuff coming to us and you're adapting it. And it's little things like that where you just think the influence this game has had beyond just games, you know, like that sort of hybridization of like, you know, organic and mechanical things. And yeah, that gun was always fascinating to me on that level because I just found it to be like disgusting in that sort of <laughs> Cronenberg-esque sort of way. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, you know, I think that was a great sort of touch point at that point. And I think one of the things they mentioned was about like one of the big influences was Stephen King's novella, you know, The Mist, which I had just been reading when I started playing the games again without realizing the connection beyond like <laughs> having watched The Mist, the film, and gone, yeah, that sounds a bit half life you Oh, look, they opened a portal to an alien world and not realizing that was the whole point. You know, Half-Life had taken that from that, you know, and that was a cool sort of thing to sort of come back on and um, the influence there. You know, I think the, there's elements of the book that you read it and you go, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I can see why, you know, they, they were really inspired by this. Like, I, I mean, they dismiss it a bit in the documentary and say, oh, yeah, it's like, yeah, that, it was an idea, but it wasn't like the whole idea. But it really was important, I think. But yeah, it, that weapon especially just does it for me in terms of like showcasing that sort of, you know, mashing of worlds, if you will. Yeah, and you know, the thing about the crowbar being so iconic and the fact that, you know, in majority of games, I feel like you only ever use your melee weapon as a last-ditch effort, right, when you're yeah. out of ammo. But in Half-Life, you know, it's essential to keep it rotating throughout your inventory uh, because of the fact that it has the environmental aspect to it where it's like you got to spend a good chunk of the time breaking down barriers or smashing vent grates and these different things. And it's like, sure, you can shoot them or blow them up, but that's going to waste your ammo, obviously. Yeah. And so, you know, I love that functionality of it, not only serving as a traditional melee weapon, but also as part of the environmental traversal, which again, it's part of that gameplay loop about how you always have to have something happening every three to five seconds when you're moving forwards. And, you know, there's the thing also where when we've been talking about like the sound design of this game and how all the weapons sound fantastic, but also just that crowbar, clanging that crowbar on vents and different environments and whatnot and getting different types of auditory feedback to it. I don't know. There's, it just, it's feels so much more involving than again, I'm typically uh, used to with games from that era that I've played sometimes um, where it's like, it might not be the case of like, oh, well, not as much thought was put into this, but with Valve and Half-Life, it just feels like every single situation or every single anecdote that's sort of, um, or vignette rather, would be the better yeah. way to put that, where these little vignettes and there's so many memorable little moments that at the end of the day, don't gradually affect the overall story or even your progression, but they're memorable for a reason, whether it is humorous, whether, again, it's blowing up food in a microwave or whether it's just unique feedback to an environment. Um, it just it makes every single area feel like a memorable set piece, even in some instances where maybe it shouldn't have been all that memorable. But again, they took that level of design additional mm -hmm. step forwards and it just it makes something as, you know, mundane as maybe a hallway section somewhat remarkable or memorable. 
Um, and typically, you know, they could also be throwing puzzles into those environments and whatnot to kind of mix them up. Um, it's always varying degrees of that, but I just am continually impressed when I go back and replay this game and just, you know, every single inv- section is as memorable as I remember playing it the first time. And by and large, even if I, you know, have remembered this entire section from start to finish, it doesn't have that sort of like going through the motions that sometimes I have when I replay games, you know, for mm. coverage or something. There's always going to be sections that I'm kind of like, yeah, you know, this is that moment that leads up to one that I'm actually looking forward to. And with Half-Life, you know, it's just, it's from start to finish. And I don't have that same type of thing. Granted, I should probably backtrack a little bit. The <laughs> ending is not my favorite part of the game, but even, you know, as that is aged, I've appreciated again, just, you know, continually redefining what the players should expect for Half-Life and just that world. Um, and that's always been, again, you know, one of those traits of Valve's design that, you know, I miss a lot. <laughs> that's why yeah. I go back and replay their games multiple times a year. Exactly. They balance um, gameplay and storytelling in a way that makes it, you want to do both. You know, like that. I think when you think of a lot of modern games and going back to them, if they're very story heavy, and you already know the story, and you're doing all the heavy work, they don't always work as well because, you know, unlike a movie where you're just watching it and you, you're passively enjoying it in that way, and you can sort of analyse it as you go, um, story-heavy games don't tend to get away with that as much because you are having to move your right way around and say, yeah, okay, the, the illusion drops a little bit. Um, it takes a really special game to sort of make that mix work. And then in first-person shooter games, you know, it's like, oh, okay, there's this section I didn't really like or whatever and like that. And they tend to feel bitty in a way that, you know, I think we've only recently had with, like, the most recent Call of Duty, where it's like, they've basically just, like, done a bunch of Warzone missions and slapped them together to make a story like that. You know, not, not that I'd ever think, Call of Duty stories have ever been as good as they've ever been made out to be. But, you know, it's a long way from where the quality bar was with that, you know, where, oh, yeah, you can remember all these bombastic moments. But even back then, like that, outside the, the odd moment, you kind of look at them for the shooting galleries they are compared to like this, where it's like there's a through line in a game like this where you really feel what they're doing and like we go back to the pace and structure and how even if they didn't mean it it's there i think i think as well like and post half-life there was clear some games trying to try it see if they could tap into it as well and one of my favorite doom games doom 3 and i'm aware that's a controversial opinion these days apparently um but it's a case of like (laughs) i've realized that part of the reason why I think I like Doom 3 is the same sort of reason I like Half-Life. It's a bit mm. slower paced. And whereas like, I, I I also understand after playing Doom and Doom, um, Doom Eternal, which I love as well, Doom is actually normally fast as fuck and just relentless. Yeah. And that's what people yeah. love about Doom. And that's fair. Doom 3 isn't that. And it's more that slow pace, crawling through these sort of areas and corridors, trying to understand what's gone wrong and get there and whether or not there yeah. was intentional influence from that um but you know bioshock as well i think probably took quite a bit of influence oh, yeah. from half-life and oh absolutely it's just a case of i think 
Half-Life doesn't always Half-Life clones don't always necessarily sell bucket loads. Sometimes they do, I'm sure. But it's a case as well, like most people I don't think want that sort of cerebral, more intricate style. They want a more like fast paced, have fun shooter. And that's why what with the fact that Valve take their time, they make something special. You know, Half-Life I know this is mainly about Half-Life, but Half-Life 2, it took everything that Half-Life did well thought how do we up mm. the ante and also what do we make how do we make it unique oh we'll play with physics more and stuff like that yeah. um how can we make it a bit more horror there's the whole of raven is it raven home yeah yep yeah uh, we don't uh, go to raven home yeah and it's a case of like they valve have always been amazing at figuring out how do we slightly improve what we've already done and make it slightly better? And that's, I think, why it is so frustrating for everyone that, for the most part, they worry more about being a shop than they do um, making games at the moment. But fully understand when it makes them bear money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's it, yeah. Why not? <laughs> I love your bringing up Doom 3 because I think that's a perfect game to compare it to in the sense that, you know, while Half-Life at times, you know, could be played at a much faster pace and still be just as fun and just as enjoyable. When you play that game more methodically and actually explore environments, the world itself opens up in so many different ways. You know, I think about all those little vignettes that you'll stumble across. You know, you see uh, the scientists behind glass, you know, getting grabbed by a head crab from a vent or something like that, or these little stories that play out that, you know, typically end with somebody dying horribly. But at the same time, you know, for some people maybe describing it as a corridor shooter or just being very linear. It's like, sure, it's linear progression, but the environments in which you're exploring, you know, how many of them have secrets in them that you can find? Little stashes. If you save a guard, a berry, or a scientist, all of a sudden they'll lead you to an office that they'll only have the key to unlock. Um, and just like little moments like that, I love. And, you know, they're completely inconsequential to the end game of Half-Life, but at the same time, you know, it makes the journey, again, feel a little more involved than just kind of going through this carnival ride, if you will. You know, it's a great carnival ride and a fun carnival ride, but at times I can get off the tracks to explore certain areas in a little more depth. Um, and I guess that leads me into like, for you guys, I'm curious, what are some of our favorite set pieces from Half-Life? And, you know, it's so easy just to say everything, but, uh, <laughs> and it's very hard for me not to just kind of say that, but, you know, um, for you, Brett, what is like a set piece outside of the intro that we talked about that always jumps out to you when you're thinking about Half-Life? The intro is the main one, so it's really hard to think outside of it. So that's, <laughs> that's annoying. Um, and I think one thing, I think the reason why it's so important, I apologize, we're going to dive more into sound later on, but it's like the sound of all the enemies in half-life is so iconic oh, yeah. and i feel it's like you know that is part of the um good horror is always make your yeah. enemies sound good and mm -hmm. they do that very well and the electric dogs when they first introduce them i forget their names i'm going to call them electric dogs the ones <laughs> who make the like vibrating noise oh, the um, hound eyes that's yeah. it um i just yeah. love that moment where they're just like they i think it's a, did i get a scientist i can't remember the scene off the top of my head yeah but, i think yeah that's it, yeah. And it just made that high-pitched whine yeah. thing. It's like that charging up style noise. It's amazing. But, but like we've discussed, what Half-Life does well is introduce all of its characters and enemies slowly, I suppose. Yeah. Um, so you don't just have all the enemies at once um, and you know what they all are. So this new, you've got used to dealing with some enemies and all of a sudden there's this weird 
electric dog thing and you're like okay uh how do i deal with this <laughs> and i just always remember that just because i love i think they're adorable i like the noise they make and it's just a as a, it's a fairly basic set piece but it's just one that sticks with me just because um it's a good introduction to another type of enemy yeah it absolutely is um on, on the same level just to add you know like the barnacles as well i just they're an enemy i dreaded you know like just the fact that they're there in plain sight so often that you think, okay, right, I can get past you. But the first time, again, introduced to them and you hear it eating a scientist and it's like in the sound it makes and just, oh, it, it's horrid. And just like getting caught by one and just being dragged up is just like the most panic-inducing moment in the game, I think, where you just get that sort of, fuck off, fuck off, fuck off, fuck off, like that, <laughs> and just trying to get out of it as soon as you can. And you know, I love that. Yeah, it's um that zombie theory. You know, it's like here's a slow enemy that you should easily be able to avoid. That doesn't need to be worried about. But yeah, your own personal hubris plus the situation you're in means that there will come a time where you won't look where you're going and you'll get caught up and you'll be like, ah, shit, like that. And it can change everything in a moment. So yeah, it it that's another one for me. Well, you know, while we're talking about sound design with enemies, the game that I always hear mentioned about, you know, good sound design of enemies is fear, right? How responsive they are, how they call you out, how they call out their tactics and these things, and, you know, how they'll spot your flashlight. But, you know, I never really realized it in the documentary, obviously helped me kind of piece it together a little bit. Just, you know, how responsive all of the enemy types are in this game, in Half-Life, just through their sound design. Um, you know, whether it's you hear the radio chatter from the Marines or you hear them calling out different things to each other or even just, you know, the aliens that have these very strange sounds. But you start to pick up when they've sensed you or when they've seen you. And then, you know, you've been sort of strafing or ducking behind something and you know whether or not you've alerted them based on the sort of the decibel or volume, I suppose, of the sounds that they're making or specific sounds. And, you know, that's a level of detail and I think over you know even strategy to a certain degree that again you know you could be completely ignorant of but probably unbeknownst to most you're picking up on those tells with if anything you know sometimes in the later parts of the game or like I was playing on um, hard this time just because I was like you know I don't remember this game being all that difficult and then like very quickly remembered like oh yeah no this can be incredibly difficult and I was relying a lot on the tells of the enemy soldiers and whatnot and just, you know, really relying on that. And I ended up, you know, it was the thing where I was not dying nearly as much because of the fact I was paying attention to that. Granted, I'm sure you wouldn't have to do that and you could still make it through the game, but it's just another level of kind of delivering a game to fans and, you know, gamers that assume that they know all of the ways in which they can play this game. But really, again, you have these multiple layers of just depth to every mechanic and just aspect seemingly. And I think for me, I guess I didn't get to share my um, my favorite monster. So earlier this year, I wrote a column about the head crabs and just how much I love those enemies. Oh. And while on paper, you know, oh, they're basic zombies, right? But really, again, you know, Valve taking a horror trope such as zombies and then having these multiple utilizations and um, I suppose, permutations of them thinking more about Half-Life 2. But, you know, there's even something about them taking the zombies and making it cosmic horror, but at the same time, it just having this additional sort of horror to it. The fact that it's not just this nondescript zombie, but it is, you know, Gordon's co-workers. 
the fact that all of these zombies that he's killing are basically people that he might have brushed shoulders with at work. Um, but also the fact that it's not just that, oh, there's the head crab on their head and then that's the extent of their zombiness, but then they have this massive gaping mouth that forms in their chest or the fact that their limbs start to grow in these abnormal ways or the fact that they, more specifically in Half-Life 2, they have that horrific scream that doesn't sound like a monster scream. It sounds like a muffled human scream, which again is like chilling in so many ways. And the fact that it comes back to that smart sound design of, you know, when the head crab zombies have seen you because of the fact that that muffled screaming occurs more and more. Um, and the fact you can like shoot the head crabs off of them, but you can still see the victim's face. And it's got this, this horrific, like melted painting of a mouth on it. Um, that was always one of my favorite aspects of just the character design. And um, again, like the end of the game for Half-Life is not necessarily my favorite, but I appreciate the fact that we get a new setting to then kind of run wild with these new cosmic horrors that we're facing. And it just gives it a different breath of energy, I suppose, even if maybe sometimes uh, it wasn't as well-conceived as it could have been. But as we learned, uh, you know, thus is the unfortunate nature of time constraints. Yeah. I mean, at least that's the one thing Black Mesa kind of addressed. You know, that game wasn't finished for ages, and it's like we'll, we'll bring out the Zen part later, like that. And you, you really felt the uh, weight of them going, "Fuck, we need to make this better," that sort of thing, like that. And you know, they, they did. Yeah, they did a really good job with that. But yeah, I think in this day and age, with the way some games go, Zen doesn't feel so bad now. You know, for me, I, I think it's yeah. It's it's anticlimactic up until the point you get to the end, and you have that you know that great ending, which especially it has more weight when you um go to Half Life Two, like that as well. But yeah, it is um unfortunate that we don't get to get like the full picture from Valve themselves, you know, to really have the definitive version of Zen, if you will. I think as well, like. From what I remember, and I could be wrong, like Zen, the whole Zen part isn't that long, is it? No, Longer no. than I think it is. So it's like a case of like, and I think that's the thing. It's like because it's not necessarily that long, and it's not to say you know I've watched so I've watched so many films, read so many books, pl- um, played so many games, etc. That have disappointing endings, and it is always that mm. thing. It's like it's like when people are happy to say this game's this much you can tell when i'm out of 10 and you can tell they've not played past a certain point because it's like that game tanks or (laughs) that game completely changes after this area um i don't think it dips so much in quality that it changes things it's just a bit of a damp script it's a bit twin peak season two which is like it's still Mm. fine but it's nowhere near as good as the the first part of the game i guess Um, but luckily because it's not so long it's not the worst thing (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's it. I, I think it's just because, yeah, as you say, it is because the quality level has been set so high, mm. you know, to that point, yeah, in terms of how they've mastered it. And yeah, like I said, with retrospect, you can look at it and go, yeah, I get it. They're, they're a team doing a, their first ever game, which yeah, the quality they got there already is just amazing, especially when you consider that there are people working on this game that, you know, their job. Yeah, as they say in the documentary, is like fucking working at Waffle House or whatever before they come here. Yeah, and they're just like people who did mods and stuff, and like, and they made this game together. Hmm. And so, I look at that and go, does it really matter that Zen's not great? <sighs> not really. Uh, I mean, there, there are games with far bigger budgets and more people working on them with 
qualifications and like years of experience that don't even come close, you know, like that yeah. to Zen, let alone the rest of the game. You know, it's so, yeah, I, I think with that, we can look at it and go, yeah, give it a pass. I, I think it's now just like a stigmatism that we'd like to give to that game because it's like baked in. It's the whole, you know, like this is the scene where um, Viggo Mortensen, you know, nearly died in <laughs> Lord of the Rings. It's that sort of thing. You, know, you just bring it up because everyone brings it up sort of thing. It isn't really the big deal it used to be. Yeah. I think if you really want the better version of it, Black Mace is there. Yeah. So and and you can you know you can look back at it in twenty it is twenty five years isn't it this year I am right yeah. yeah and you can look back at it it's twenty five years old back then it was still really good and even though yeah, yeah. it ended a bit eh it still didn't have much that was of its caliber in terms of that level of storytelling or that level of how the game no. works at that time and games have improved since then but also at the same time Half Life's still so far up at the top that the fact it's been able to stand this test of time over twenty five years the fact mm. And, you know, I think as well, like, yes, it's nice that you've got Black Mesa and it um, ups the graphics and makes everything look nicer, like makes everything play nicer. But at the same time, I think it still looks like a lovely game if you play it with its original sort of style. It's There's almost yeah. a charm to the blockiness. <laughs> yeah, especially with the anniversary update, which has, you know, given us um, better options for, like, widescreen and just playing on modern systems. And that, it, it, I already played it. In multiple versions, I've played the source version, the original version. I played Black Mesa again, and then they announced this update. And I was like, "Fuck it, got to do it again." You know, like that to see what's different. And it was like, "Wow, yeah, this changes and adds so much." You know, like and you had that uplink um, side mission thing that you couldn't get, you know, anymore. And then, oh, God, it was just, it was really lovely to sort of play this thing I played so many times again, and it still feels fresh. You know, I think there are games, you know, you can put nostalgia into certain things. Everyone's got their favourite games and they'll go into it and play it again and go, oh, yeah, I found something new that I like about this. And, you know, this just happened to be that with Half-Life for me, you know, where I, I go back into it and every time there's something I go, oh, that's cool. And I think the best thing has been, like, the documentary where it's just sort of gone, oh, now I know this about this, this, and this. And it's given it like a new lease of life in a way for me where I, I view it differently all over again much in the same way like the first time I played Half-Life again after Half-Life 2 and then realised like the connection you know with the endings and like and the way that all goes and it was just magical and like even going to Portal and you know having this sort of connected universe that's not really spoken about too much it I think in just Valve's game design in general, you know, it's it just something that just feels consistent, you know, like any Valve game I've gone back and replayed and, you know, doing Left 4 Dead because that's our next one, you know, we're going to, because that's 15. And every time we look at them and go, it, it's mad. These are timeless in a way, you know, like the, you know, in Left 4 Dead's case, yeah, lots of games have tried to copy that in recent years, especially. And, I was looking back at it this week and going, yeah, but I see what's missing you know, in those games compared to what Valve did. And it's the same with Half-Life, you know, when you go back to shooters. I think, ironically, the best shooter that's ever you know, done the story-style thing and made it good at gameplay, good story, good fun around the Titanfall 2. 
And guess what? Source engine. Yeah, like that. Yeah, it was um, almost fitting that it was the game that used a source engine and ended up being like one of the best single player campaigns in a first person shooter of the modern era. Uh, and because Respawn just understood entirely, like, let's make a good game, let's make a fun story, let's, let's do it all cohesively. And again, it's one of those games where I love to go back time and again replay it because it has all those elements and it does smart things and the only other things that really do that these days in a first person environment are, are probably arcane's games you know in the immersive sim genre where they take a lot of what happened before and that playfulness and that experimentation and they put it into a wider scope but they are to me probably closer to the legacy of half-life than pretty much any other first person shooter since that's fair. And I think, you know, it's trying to think of what puts all those things together as well, like thinking of Left 4 Dead, thinking of Arcane stuff and as well. And it's like, I think it is, you have your, you've got your corridors, you've got your bits where you know stuff is mm. going, you go this way, it's tight, it's claustrophobic, and then you open it up a bit, but not too much yeah. to give you a bit of exploration, and then you can open it up wider if you want to. Yes. And it's it's always a case of like, good games sometimes will then just try and give a bit too much you you know yes you want a playground but you also need some limitation and it's always finding that balance you know half-life did it perfectly and the games that you um reeled off as well they're normally games that hit the same sort of thing a playground without it being an overwhelming playground yes that's it yeah it's a playground that hides in plain sight yeah it's like (laughs) you you think you're looking at a, a small ornate garden and really it's a fucking jungle gym that's going on for miles so like that it, it that's the best kind of game like that way it just seems simple and they're the kind of games that most people look at play them and go well it seemed very ordinary i didn't do very much because they don't want to see the game beyond that game mm. and, and even half-life I, I think suffered from that in some level so yeah it, i think that's um the best lesson that could be learned, I think, from Half-Life is that, you know, you can expand upon it, you can do the same thing, but you really have to look into the specifics. I think one of the things Gabe Newell pointed out in that documentary, which we'll keep referencing because it's so fucking good, <laughs> is that, you know, it's like like someone bringing up about how it didn't feel realistic in certain situations. Like, well, you know, in, re- in real life, you know, I, I have to make lists for the shopping. You know, why the fuck would I want things to be like real life? Like that, I, I'm here to make things fun. And it's just like, yeah, that's it. I think realism's great in the right context for a game, but there's always some sort of absurdism to it. You know? There's always something that isn't real life to add to that realism. So you just have to balance it you know simulators even don't really take it full you know full tilt realism there's something about them that isn't real and that's what makes them fun to play it's pissing about with realism in a way that isn't reality and that's what you want and i think that's what the matrix was sort of teaching you wasn't it it was like you know the idea like it's reality but you can manipulate it in a way that is like out of this world and strange and things like that and they're always the best games in a way they've got just the right amount of reality with the right amount of understanding that hey we're a video game first and we want players to have fun give them the tools to have fun 
And I suppose it's no surprise that when I think to every game that I love has that. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I think that for me, you know, when you're talking about the kind of through line for all of Valve's games and, you know, if we want to throw out a term like, uh, I suppose, connected universe between there, even though it's such like a loaded phrase these days, but, you know, thinking about how you can connect Half-Life to like the Portal games and, you know, and how Left 4 Dead even, you know, what bare bones of a story it has, it still has staples of storytelling that were learned from the Half-Life games. You know, what I always find fascinating about Valve's methodology to storytelling is that, you know, the probably the biggest deviation, I suppose, from what was a very apt uh, comparison to like Arcane from a gameplay standpoint, you know, Arcane games have loads and loads of lore to them, right? They've got tombs, mm. tomes full of lore, uh, which is fantastic for those worlds and everything. But, you know, the simplicity of Valve storytelling, I always find really engaging, despite how bare bones at times it might be because of the fact that, you know, they create these really well-designed narratives that just ask more questions rather than, you know, kind of focus on answering any of the particular questions in any real depth past what, you know, you just encounter. You basically get visual answers to the questions through the gameplay um, rather than, you know, obviously they don't have cutscenes as we mentioned, but you don't really get a great deal of dialogue of just exposition being spewed at the player, maybe a little bit more in uh, Half-Life 2, but um, it's the thing where it's like every time you feel like you're getting to the cusp of a question, who's, you know, the G-man, who's behind this, the combine and all these things, either, you know, it just introduces a new question that makes you think more about the world or the way it operates, or it just gives you quite literally like a visual representation of that. Like in episode two, you start, you're like, who's behind all this? And then you are quite literally shown that. Um, But you don't really spend a great deal of time getting bogged down in like the logistics or, you know, the bestiary of how these things are operating together, this or that, because all that's learned just through experiencing and through the gameplay itself. I think, yeah. And yeah. Oh, sorry. I was going to say an environmental story. Environmental. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And what I was going to say as well is like, Half-Life is almost, um, I'm going to compare it to like experimental film and stuff like that. You know, the, yeah. G, the G-Man stuff, so bizarre and so just almost out of nowhere. I mean, I know they pre-build the G-Man being there a bit beforehand, but it's just a case like the way it all happens is so bizarre. G-Man himself, very bizarre character and never, I can't, I, I still don't fully know what he is. I know it has been sort of explained, but it's like, there's still so much that needs to be known about that character, but also they're not going to mm-hmm. tell you everything. And that's fine. And yeah. I think so much in modern cinema, modern television, modern games, there's this mindset that everyone needs to know everything. And yeah, it can't but- just you can't just leave things to be thought about and you have to think that way. It's that everything has to be explained. And what, as you sort of said, Half-Life simplicity is, it's got a story it wants to tell. It tells its story. Yeah, you'll have different stories pop up like um, Blue Shift and Opposing force and half-life 2 and etc etc but its main thing is telling its story it'll get a bit weird at times but it won't explain it all the way it will just leave you to think about it rather than spoon feeding you every bit of info possible and then making seven games explaining every single character that pops (laughs) up in it (laughs) yes unfortunately that is a reality (laughs) at the same time i would still like it if they would make seven more half lives please (laughs) i know we haven't got three yet but still (laughs) just one more would be nice you know it's like one more that isn't dependent on like really expensive headwear would be nice 
you can always port it to other VR systems, by the way. So, you know, like to maybe, yeah, like a particular PlayStation one would be nice. Yeah, just to, just to give more people the chance to experience more of the Half-Life universe. Yeah, I'm nice. I am so starved for Half-Life games that I'm looking into right now the uh, the mod to play Half-Life Alex devoid of the VR. And apparently they've got it down pretty good. So, and, you know, some of the, uh, I suppose, comments were like, well, you can only, it's best experienced as the way it was intended in VR. But I was like, I don't care. I don't care if <laughs> the story bits don't end up having some kind of major, obviously it's not going to have a major reveal about uh, the Half-Life universe or characters that kind of upend your understanding of anything. But I just love being in that universe for the reasons we've you know been discussing now for more than an hour. And more importantly, you know, I don't even know the narrative that is in Half-Life um, Half Alex. But at the same time, even if it's inconsequential, I don't care because I know how entertaining Valve's writing is, how they're able to introduce new characters that have seemingly, you know, feel as if they've been there since day one. They feel so naturally ingrained into that world. They operate by a way, a set of like morals almost, I suppose, that all characters do that, you know, are in the uh, the core resistance and whatnot. And just getting to be in that world again, even if it doesn't, again, kind of alter my understanding of anything. It's like, that's fine. If it was a two-hour game, if it was a one-hour game, I would still want to play it um, just to kind of get a little bit of that magic back, I suppose, or experience that again uh, in a new way. But, you know, I guess before we wrap up, um, Brett, were there any other aspects, you know, of Half-Life that make it so timeless for you that we kind of skipped over? I know we already covered a lot. We This is a, a small, quick tangent just to talk about Half-Life um, to episode two. The one thing that I will always stick with me transporting a gnome whatever valve do next <laughs> let, let me transport yeah. a gnome it's great um i think the key thing with half-life that will always stick with me is just the fact that it sounds so iconic i know we sort of have touched on sounds but it is that case of like it's sound design so amazing it then ties it into everything to work and i think that's it's a perfect example of a game that isn't just one thing works really well and another thing works really well. Everything works really well together to create this game that is still relevant, still being talked about 25 years later. Um, and if we get more of the story of the universe, fantastic. If we don't, um, that's fine as well, because there's already been great parts of the story told in that universe. Um and, you know, it's the sort of thing I remember years ago talk of like, will we get a film adaptation of Half-Life? And it's just like, it wouldn't work the same because Half-Life no. works because it is counter. It doesn't basically play like a film or TV show would. It plays out like no. a game should because yeah. it understands it's a game and tells its story like a game and does it superbly. And I guess those are my closing points on Half-Life. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I think it, it's kind of... Yeah, the, the point that would always frustrate people is that, sure, we had Half-Life Alex, which is, you know, a prequel to Half-Life 2, sequel to Half-Life. But the fact that Half-Life 2, Episode 2, left it on that cliffhanger is obviously still this big point of contention. It's like, you clearly meant to do something else. You clearly did, because why the fuck would you leave it like that? Like that? And it just, it to this day, it's just like, the... The way they just shrug it off now, it just makes me think, of, I get it. You you couldn't find what you wanted to do with that story. Just just admit it. Just don't just leave us hanging on that you may one day get back to it like that. 
Um, I wouldn't mind, you know, like if they do one day get back to it, but it's going to be so divorced from the game that came out before that, you know, to do it, you basically have to then go back to Half-Life 2 and those episodes and remake them to make it relevant because you can't fucking buy it on most things. You know, like the only way you can get it is backwards compatible on Xbox now, really, if you're not a PC player. So it, it's just dumb that they, they've not done anything with it. Same with Portal, to be fair, as well, where it's like I would kill for a, a Portal sequel, probably more than a Half-Life sequel at this point. Um, because again, another great example of like the gameplay and the story just being perfect marriage you know, and like it's crazy how that game those games are you know, very different in how they play to Half-Life but they feel so much like Valve you know they are Valve through and through it more than say Left 4 Dead which you know are very much focused on the gameplay the, the story stuff happens kind of in the background by osmosis but Portal is like it is the companion piece to Half-Life in so many ways. And between them, you know, like we were saying very early on in this episode, Valve just don't tend to miss, uh, you know, with what they do. And I look at like Half-Life, Half-Life 2, Portal 2. Those are three of my favourite games of all time. You know, like that. Uh, and it's no surprise. Like that. And we talk about like all the things that span off of like the source engine and stuff like that. The amount of hours I put into day of defeat (laughs) is insane. You know, like that between that and counter-strike, my God. Yeah. I mean, just team Fortress two. Yeah. I mean, you look at that legacy and you go back to like half-life itself, the beginning as you know, like they got, you know, it giving them their engine, like, and then just going, yeah, we got it, but now we're going to like, turn it into something completely different and make it our engine sort of thing. It just shows you how crazy that time was for like PC gaming. You know, everything was like built on each other, you know, like that. I think we discussed this quite a lot when we were talking about Quake and Quake 2, where, you know, because of the short time period between all these games, there is a lot of collaboration and people jumping from one studio to the other and like that, you know, this game alone, you know, had people from Duke Nukem, you know, and, and Quake and all that, and and Microsoft, of all things. Um, imagine something, this creative coming out of Microsoft. It's um, quite the thing at this point. But it's just fascinating to think that the Valve doing what they did, just having the balls to just to this day look at it and go, yeah, maybe we'll do another Half-Life game. And then, and then when they do, it's like, do it on VR, like that. Like that. Not really caring about, like, finding the widest audience. I mean, that's the greatest respect you can pay to them. Is that they didn't just go, fine, we'll, we'll make something for everybody. They were like, we'll make the game we find most fascinating. And that, that really, like, pushes where we want to go with Half-Life to a new level. Yeah, as much as frustrating... Yeah, and, and annoying for people who really want to play a new Half-Life and can't unless they have like really expensive headwear for a PC. It's yeah, commitment to the bit that's always been there with um, Valve. Yeah, even back to that generation where 
they went putting games on PlayStation. I hated that they didn't put like Left 4 Dead and Left 4 Dead 2 on PlayStation. And then we had that fucking spiel with Portal 2. Like, oh yeah, we're going to make games for PlayStation now. And then they never made a fucking game again. So after that, really, it's like, it's like, it was the best choice. It's like, yeah, they probably will, but they didn't. It's like, it's just amazing. I think people forget as well, like Half-Life 2 was a, you're buying new gear for your PC game. People forget yeah. that 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 game was a way to sort of showcase what this new gear could do to and what new sort of like software and hardware could do to improve how your games looked and played. Um, and because I, I remember my friend upgraded his PC to check it out and I went round and it was just amazing watching it. And that's why I sort of do understand why they did with Alex what they did with Alex, because it's like, we're going to show you how this game looks in an amazing headset. But, you know, as I, I like VR. I don't hate VR, but that was three years ago. VR hasn't, if anything, got... VR, in my opinion, has probably got less popular than it was three years ago at this point. Um, it's not going on leaps and bounds that it could have done. Um, and one other quick point just to raise from what you were saying about how back then it was all people um, sort of like building on each other. All of the spin up the Opposing Force and Blue Shift and the PS2 game, that was all Gearbox. And it's just funny yeah. to think like how much great games have come from because Half-Life existed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is crazy. I mean, it's just, you really just look into the, beginning of it and just work your way out and you just find so many so many people who worked on these games to go out and make other games and like it's something we see a lot in the industry when people make a really big game and then they go to another company when we're starved for the game they made and they go oh yeah we're gonna make a game exactly like that you know shinji mikami like making the evil within sort of thing where you go oh yeah i'm gonna make a horror game like resident evil it's like he just forgot to tell us it was like Resident Evil 5 rather than Resident Evil you know, 2. So, but fine. Like that. It is nice to see that people are out there that had worked or worked on. I mean, when I bring up Arcane, you know, they were going to make a Ravenholm game, you know, at one point. So, you know, even they have a connection. And now, you know, when I saw that at the time, I was like, that makes more sense now, you know, that they were involved with that because. They, they have that blueprint, that identity. And, yeah, there's so, so many false starts in between you know, Alex coming out and that gap after the cliffhanger of episode two. But, again, nothing will ever be like we hope it will be uh, at this point. So enjoy Half-Life for what it is like that. In much the same way now I can look at something like Metal Gear Solid and go, well, Kojima's not going to be doing it, so it's not going to be the same. If they make one, great, but I'm not going to have that level of expectation about it. Same with Valve. It's like there are some people there still that would be involved, but yeah, I'm not going to blow my fucking top if they don't make another Half-Life game at this point, as much as it would be lovely. I have two words, Shenmue 3. Um, proof, yeah. proof that maybe it's not great to get the long-awaited sequel sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I mean, yeah, that, that that was, I suppose, more of a point of like time, too much time had passed, hasn't yeah. it? And I think that's probably true of this as well. Yeah, it, it, you can go too far beyond it, and I think now, sixteen years after the last, you know, proper part of that Half Life 
story, if you don't include Alex, which you can't because it's a prequel, then yeah, you can look and go, well, the, nobody playing now really is going to have the same connection. It's going to be a very small handful of people. And I think Valve realized that. Yeah. Well. Yeah. I think, you know, if anything, we'll see how they can utilize the IP to maybe tell new stories in that universe. Because, you know, if anything, something like Half-Life Alex, which again, I still haven't played, but you know, that shows that they can be, they can make a game that occupies that world that doesn't always have to focus on Gordon Freeman, even if, you know, the events are leading up to his story and everything like that. They proved that, you know, they're more than capable of telling new stories that, you know, might have familiar faces in it in that established world. And if anything, you know, as somebody that has been a fan of, you know, the series, uh, it's probably one of my favorite series. I try not to think too much about, you know, what, how would this end or what would a part three look like? Because as we've kind of been saying, it's not really realistic to expect that we'll ever get that. And by this point, would we even, what we receive, would it even satisfy, you know, whatever we thought a finale to Half-Life would look like all these years later. But if anything, it makes me excited, hopefully for, you know, the future of what Half-Life could look like. And that's not to say like, oh, you need to have this whole new arc that is directly linked to Gordon Freeman or these things. But I just think, you know, Valve knows how to tell interesting stories or perhaps familiar structures for stories, but in very unique ways with their own sort of in-house twists on things that, you know, more often than not uh, is a hit. And they haven't really made a game yet that I haven't been a fan of uh, in some degree. So yeah, you know, I think at this point, um, it's great that we get to at least look back on the original Half-Life, of course, and the series as a whole, and just see how they're able to take what on paper is, you know, a pretty bare bone story. And yet it's one of the most influential games of all time. And, you know, and we've, uh, I think, gotten to the root of that. But Brett, it was such a pleasure having you on, man, to get to celebrate, you know, 25 years of Half-Life, but getting to chat about the series as a whole as well. Oh, thank you very much for having me. It's um, been fun to geek out about something that I've not necessarily <laughs> thought about as much. But at the same time, it seems I've thought about a lot considering how much I had to say. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. That's always the secret ones. The ones where you, you, you think about it and go, yeah, I like that game. I'm not sure if I have much to say about it. And then you know, an hour and a half later, like, oh, I did. Yeah. <laughs> the best games are often the ones that have influenced you or influenced the game, other games that you love more than uh, you know people actually realize. So I think that uh, speaks well to Half-Life's timelessness and whatnot. But yeah, thanks again. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to another episode of Safe Room. If you enjoy the show, please rate us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at Safe Room Pod for show updates. You can follow our Twitter account for Horror Bites also at HorrorBites underscore SR. You can join our Discord channel, Safe Room Podcast, to chat with us and other horror fans about the genre we all love. And last but not least, you can email us at saferoompod at gmail.com if you'd like to share your thoughts on a game we're going to cover. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you guys next Monday.